Uh, again, we are in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 40 through 42, focusing specifically on 42. So uh, we're going to be there uh, for this week and the next couple weeks anyway. So you can uh, put your marker there in your Bible or whatever, and, and if it sounds like Nathan's saying the same verse over and over, he is. So um, uh, that is where the Lord has us here for the next few weeks, so uh, hopefully you found your way there. Albert Woodfox was convicted of armed robbery in 1971. Woodfox escaped the Orleans Parish Courthouse and was later captured in Harlem, New York, whereby he was transported back to Louisiana and uh, went to spend his 50-year sentence in the notoriously violent Angola prison. A year later, he, ha- he and one other man, Herman Wallace, who were attempting to raise awareness of the mistreatment of prisoners, were indicted and later convicted of the murder of a 23-year-old prison guard. These circumstances landed both Wallace and Woodfox in solitary confinement where they would each spend more than 40 years, becoming the longest incarcerations with solitary confinement in American prison history. Although a general prison sentence accomplishes many things to include the punishment of the loss of personal freedom, prisoners who follow the rules maintain the opportunities to partner with others in education, religious practices, and the most basic human need relationships with one another. In an article titled, What are the Effects of Solitary Confinement on Health? Published in Medical News Today, author Jane Leonard defines solitary confinement, sometimes referred to as isolation or lockdown or segregation. She defines it as the physical isolation of individuals who are confined to their cells for 22 and a half hours or more per day. They eat, they sleep, they use the toilet, all in the same cell, which rarely, if ever, has a window. Friends, as we think about this solitary confinement It is recognized worldwide as the punishment for those being punished. Noting this reality, after all her research, the author Leonard makes this statement, humans require social contact. Regardless of the time spent in isolation, the symptoms of unstable mental health show up immediately for those in solitary confinement. Those symptoms are anxiety, depression, hopelessness, hostility, panic attacks, hypersensitivity to sounds and smells, problems with attention, concentration, and memory. Isolation also causes hallucinations, paranoia, outbursts of violence, psychosis, fear of death, and self-harm or suicide often results with those who are isolated. Eleven, Leonard's research led her to the conclusion that humans require social contact, and there is no greater damage to a human being that can be done than to deny the most basic human need, fellowship. In short, today's title is titled Fellowship Matters, and it matters even in the most difficult of circumstances. 
If you're visiting with us today, we are in a short series between the finishing of 1 Timothy and the start of 1 John here in a few weeks. We have titled this series, A Devoted Church. We have noted that the New Testament church was continually devoted to six truths. The devotion to those truths helped propel that church into being a people who turned the world upside down, and the gospel went out and lives changed. We've already learned in this series that if our church is going to be like that first century church, we will have to be continually devoted to those who are equipping us, that is, qualified elders. And we must be devoted to being equipped, that we have talked about the fact that the ministry cannot just be something we come and do on a Sunday morning, but it must be a part of our life. It must be something that extends beyond the walls of our facility. Number two, we have learned that we must be, if we are going to be a church that reaches the world, we must be devoted to reaching the lost. And we talked about the the need to know the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel's content? So many of us, we we have ideas about what it is, but we have not clearly got it set in our minds so that at, at a moment's notice, we can walk through the gospel with somebody sharing God's truths. We talked about that that to be a church that turns the world upside down, we must know the content of the gospel. And number three, last week's message, uh, we will have to be a church that is continually devoted to the truth of God's word. Last week, as you know, we started up all our discipleship classes. And we have, uh, rather than just kind of start Sunday school classes that we may always kind of think of them as our class that we forever stay in, the elders have structured those classes so people can walk through, decide exactly where they are in their discipleship progress and get engaged in the right spot for them. We've got about eight people in our brand new beginnings discipleship class, just learning what is your Bible? What, why is there an Old and a New Testament? What does it mean to be a sinner who needs saved by grace? Just the very basic things. Secondly, we have Troy Summers, who's teaching full books of the Bible. He taught Genesis this morning. Now, that's a miracle in itself. There's no way I could have got through chapter two, right? But the idea is not that we're diving in deep to, every, to parse every verb there. It's that, that we need to have more familiarization with the whole Bible. What does Genesis teach? What must we know about Genesis? What does Exodus teach? What must we know about Exodus? So on and so forth. Thirdly, uh, Nathan is teaching a class on why the Ten Commandments still matter to us today. And Paul is going through Galatians more verse by verse, word by word, thinking his way through with that class. And we encourage you that the Word of God matters, that truth matters. We must know the truth if we are going to reach a generation. Friends, that leads us to today and We'll see that if we are going to be a church that turns the world upside down, we will have to be a church that is continually devoted to fellowship. Continually devoted to fellowship. In short, fellowship matters. Like Jane Leonard, who reported in that Medical News Today article saying that humans require social contact, the Word of God is clear. Isolation, lockdown, and segregation will never advance the church toward the mission of making disciples. It will never advance. We are a a, a nation full of extreme autonomy, 
live on your own, get away from other people. Other people make me uncomfortable. That is so antithetical to the Scripture. Fellowship matters. What did this church do that turned the world upside down? They focused on the apostles' doctrine and what? Fellowship. The breaking of bread and what? Prayer. Continually devoted. As we focus on fellowship today, we're going to answer three questions. What is fellowship? Did God design humanity for it? And what should we do in response? What is fellowship? Did God design humanity for it? And what should we do in response? Let's take a look at the first question. What is fellowship? What is it that the early church was continually devoted to? I want to say this from the onset that English is a great language. I appreciate it and uh, so much. It is the one that we know and use and most of us probably not very well. The more I took uh, Greek and Hebrew in, uh, in my seminary studies, the more I realized how ridiculously horrible my English was as I studied grammar and uh, began to to learn languages. And what we know about languages is that words change over time. Some people get so frustrated with translations and all these things, and we want to hold on to history and all these different types of things. But the reality is, is that language change. One of my seminary professors always liked to use this. I've probably used it from the pulpit before, but as we get ready to hop into what the definition of fellowship is, I want to challenge you to think about the fact that often we use words in ways that they do not really mean what the Bible is saying, and I'm going to argue that that's the case. And this seminary professor would always say this. He would mention the word incredible. And as I say incredible, every one of you either thinks of a cartoon character that is amazing Or you thought of the word amazing. His point is always this. The word does not mean amazing. It means not credible. Not credible. (laughs) There is credible and there is not credible. But over the years, as we use a word, it uh, we, we see something amazing happen, and, and somehow we try to associate that, and the word turns from something that is not credible to actually something that just happened. <laughs> it may have been amazing, but it was not not credible. So let's challenge our minds here for just a moment. The word fellowship, and the Greek word behind it is koinonia. Many of you are familiar with that term. It really shows up throughout the New Testament quite a bit. And it is defined as this, it's up there uh, before you, as an association, so just pause for just a second, an association assumes, right, multiple people that have come together for some kind of a purpose we have associated together, involving close mutual relations and involvement. So, an association involving close mutual relationships and involvement and involvement. Koinonia can be and is often translated as association. It is also uh, translated as communion or a close relationship. It is a word that is often used to describe marriage. It is a word that is often used to describe marriage. 
Unfortunately, marriage is not usually what comes to mind, right, when we hear the word fellowship. It's not really that, that word, right? We think more of commitment and uh, a mutual involvement with somebody I have made a lifetime commitment toward. But koinonia is used as a word, as a synonym for and to describe marriage. We tend to think of fellowship more like socializing, don't we? Something we do in our spare time, maybe after services, or we uh, get together at home, or even uh, uh, something we would do in between, right? The, the discipleship hour, and now we're just going to kind of hang out. We're just going to fellowship. We use the word like a verb, right? Something that we do, and it certainly has that point within its intentionality. In that sense, we most often use the word uh, as something we do rather than something we are. This is what I want to point out, and maybe you want to grab a pen or some way to highlight this in your text, and you can move to the word fellowship there in Acts 2.42, and if you want, you can just draw your little carrot in there, and you can write in the word the. Write in the word the. It's in the Greek text. It's in every Greek manuscript. And it is there because this is a noun. It is not a verb. The church wasn't devoted to the apostles' doctrine and then getting together and having a good time. This is a noun. This is something that they were. They were devoted to the fellowship. Right? The fellowship. Young's literal translation, I appreciate uh, that they do that, and as you can imagine, it is very literal. It takes each word uh, and puts it into the English text to the best of their ability in order that we might see this. And Young's literal uh, translation of Acts 2.42 says this, and they were continuing steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship. The fellowship. Seeing the definite article in front of fellowship helps us to pull away from our natural thinking of this verbal idea of just coming together to socialize around something, right? To a noun that we see, the fellowship. Remember, a noun is the thing, right? And the verb is the thing that that noun is doing or some kind of thing that the noun is receiving, right? My point in sharing you all this geeky grammar, right? Hold on for just a second, is to, to help you to understand that when we see fellowship here without that definite article, though, we tend in our natural Western thinking to think it's something we come together and just have a good time. It's not here. It is the fellowship. It is purposeful. It is something that they are doing, right, that is very much uh, defining who they are as a people. So, in order to better understand the thing, that is the noun, that is the fellowship. Let's take a moment and learn about the meaning and the construction of koinonia. The word is actually an abstract term. It comes from two different words in the Greek, in that uh, koine Greek. It comes from the noun koinonas and the verb koinoneo. Koinonas and koinoneo. There, you just got your Greek lesson for the day. The, the noun portion of it, it means one who takes part in something with someone, a companion, a partner, a sharer, or a fellow is how we get our name, and, uh, or a participant or participation. 
In English, fellow can be used very generally, right, to describe. I see back there in the back right now, Daniel Maloney is talking to uh, one of our other safety guys, and uh, those two fellows generally are talking, right? But that's not the intention of this uh, uh, portion of fellow. Uh, The word uh, koinonas is more specific than that. It is more like this idea of an incorporated member of a college or a university. Maybe you've heard uh, people spoken of, they are a fellow. They are a participant with uh, the university or college to, to study something that is very intentional. And so the university comes along and they say, well, we're not smart enough to study that out, nor do we have the time, but we do have the resources and we believe in this fellow. And together they come together and they have this fellowship. It's a participation, and one brings their expertise, and the other brings their resources, and they come together in a fellowship in order to move the advancement of that study forward. So koinonia, the fellowship, is uh, in part comes from this noun, which means uh, partnership or uh, participation with. You have your Bibles uh, handy there with you. You can turn to First uh, John. We're going to be there and spend probably months in First John here uh, coming up. But I want to point out some things now that we have a little better understanding of this fellow, this this participation in First John. And this is how John, uh, who uses it, this word very uh, very much so in this letter. What he says in chapter 1, verse 3, we have, we, that is the apostles, have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now, because we get fellowship all mixed up with having a good time, replace that with participation. Replace that. You don't have to exit out. I mean, you know what I'm saying. But let's replace it with participation and read the same verse. So that you may too have participation with us. That brings a little different intentionality, right? You may too have participation with us. And indeed, our participation is with the Father. Brings a little different meaning, right? And with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, skip on down to verse 6. If we say that we have participation with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have participation with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. Does that help a little bit? We come to this thing that the church is turning the world upside down. It's not this idea that they're just getting together, having fun, watching the Super Bowl together, although I like doing all those things. The idea is they have, like that uh, university professor, that fellow and that, uh, that university, they have come together to participate in a common goal. And so if it helps you, write it in there. Participation is absolutely an option for translating koinonia. Not only does koinonia or fellowship come from the noun koinonos, a fellow and a cause, but it also comes from the verb koinoneo, which means to share with someone in something which they have or to take part in. It's to, it is a sharing. 
That is the verb. The two words, the fellow, is sharing, participating, right? Take a look with me at the very next verses back there in Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47. Take note of the description of the fellowship that turned the world upside down. I'll have it for you up here. Underline them if you'd like, but what I want you to pay attention to is the, the one another's the plurality of everything that is stated, the the intentionality, almost a description of what fellowship meant comes in these few verses. Take a look there. Everyone, notice, right? Who's those everyone? Those are the 3,000 people who had got saved at the preaching of the right gospel, kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place. Underline this, if you would, and say, come back and study this through the apostles. I can't get off track here, but notice who the miracles are being done through here. There's huge sections of evangelical Christianity today that are saying miracles must happen. They happen every time we open our Bibles and we see them. Oh, you mean except for in those 3,000 people who got saved on day one? (laughs) Who was doing the miracles and the signs and the wonders? The apostles. I can't get any more off track than that. And in all, or and all, verse 42, uh, 44, excuse me, underline all, those who had believed were together, underline that, and they had all things in common, underline that, and they, plural, began selling their plural property and possessions because why wouldn't they? They are sharers in this fellowship. And uh, they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone, anyone might have need. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking uh, bread from house to house. They, plural, were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Beloved, what is fellowship? Is it getting together to just have a good time or is it this idea of committedness and, and, and working together and coming together as we uh, just finished up our largest incoming class of, of prospective members, is I think 20, 23 members, uh, something like that. When we come to the end of that, we are asking them very, very specifically to get engaged uh, with the membership. We're, we're saying, uh, come and take part. Uh, let's, let us lock hands together. I often get questions in that class as we focus on membership uh, when uh, membership is not really a term that is explicitly used in the Bible, and I kind of argue back on that a little bit, but, but I am sympathetic to that question, and I'm always trying to get rid of Christian cultural terms in my own mind to adopt biblical ones. And so you can help me maybe when I say membership to to shift in my own mind, right? The idea of membership is the idea of fellowship, coming together, sharing. Those who have joined our fellowship most recently, currently we have 77 individuals and they have Uh, agreed to partner together. Those who are coming in will be agreeing to these same very things. I have it before me. Each fellow in our fellowship is agreed to this, to protect the unity of our church. How would they do that? By submitting their lives to the lordship of Jesus, first and foremost, to biblical leadership. We're very clear about that, right? Not just leadership, but 
Leadership that is defined by 1 Timothy 3, right? And other places in our Bible, biblical leadership. And to one another of, uh, out of reverence for him, they are to protect the unity of the church. They are to share in the responsibility for our church by praying for its people and its ministries. We have spent all summer having Wednesday night prayer meetings. We encourage every one of these small group leaders to do two things. And listen, we are not asking you to be a, a, a Greek or Hebrew scholar to lead a small group, and please do so. If you so choose, come and talk to me. All we want people to do is to come together to know each other like a family, that our unity might increase, and we want to pray together. It's pretty simple stuff, but very powerful. So they have, they have shared in the responsibility for our church by praying for its people and the ministries, by, also by consistent, set-apart financial giving and taking part in offerings prayerfully, cheerfully, and sacrificially, we say. The next item that they have agreed to fellow or partner with is to serve in the ministries of our church by discovering and using our gifts and abilities. If you've been here for any length of time, you have watched uh, uh, the people God has brought come up. They introduce themselves, and then I always ask them to say, where would you like to serve in the church? Because this is not just about coming and getting. It is coming and giving, right, and giving and giving. And the last is to support the testimony of our church by attending faithfully and regularly and by living a holy and pleasing life to God. So the first of three questions is what this fellowship or this koinonia, what is it that they had that was continually uh, causing them to be devoted to? It is more than just church attendance. It's more than I have, I, I have regretfully only in my own heart have met so many people in our community who have at one point in time or another been a member of First Baptist Church, and they will always introduce themselves, even if they've been gone for 20 years, as I am a member. And it breaks my heart because the, what's going on inside of me, although I would not be rude or, or, or say this out loud, is no, you are not. The Bible describes what it means to be a fellow in a participation with God's people under a set of doctrines and a set of leaders that God has put in the church. And it saddens me to think that they would isolate themselves and still feel like they are a part of God's life that he has given So what is this fellowship? It is not and is not just coming together, having a cup uh, of coffee or listening to some preaching or having some Christian friends over lunch. It is this. It is an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. An association, right? A coming together that that means that we have close mutual relations. That's why we're after small groups. That's why we love you for you to either start one, be in one. Listen, you're going to eat dinner anyway. Just invite somebody over to eat with you and pray with them. Wow, we have a new small group, right? Close mutual relations, knowing each other beyond uh, the niceties of Sunday morning and the and the clothes and the smiles, right? And knowing each other and knowing we struggle and praying for one another. That we might come together and be involved together in the moving forward of this body. 
Amen? Let's be honest with ourselves, beloved. Does our definition of church include close mutual relations and involvement? If not, by and large, if that does not change, we will not be a church who sets the world upside down. We will just be people who come and get something, feel better about our day or week. And listen, beloved, I get that. Sometimes, man, I've come in, I have been hurt and broken, and sometimes from churches. And I've sat in the back, and I've got up and I've walked out because I just needed to be healed up. I get that if that's where you're at. But it can't be where you stay. Come in. Know who we are. Work together. Become fellows with us in the work of seeing God in Cheyenne. Amen? The second question concerning koinonia is, did God design humanity for close mutual relations and involvement? And the answer is very simply yes. And every prison knows it, right? Wallace and Woodfox, those men, and uh, when, you, when you become aware of what many of our men and women have experienced when we are in a war outside of our own borders, right, and you, uh, they get thrown into prisons, and those who they really want to punish, right, they isolate them. I remember in my time in the service, we had guys on our teams that would have to go off to uh, what was called SEER school. I won't get on into all the details, but they're essentially being trained uh, uh, to be able to escape and evade and get away from things like solitary confinement and live and survive. Everybody knows that the worst part of any kind of punishment is being isolated. And, and in that school, they would lock those men and women up in an area where you, they could not quite sit all the way down to ever get any rest. They used the bathroom right there. They ate right there. And they couldn't move. Why is it that we choose to do that? As people, why is it? I know that uh, many times we get hurt and we just want to get away from people. I get that, but I'm telling you, isolation is the hope of the enemy. God, understanding this, knowing this, he put Adam into the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and it records for us, then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Although this text is clearly speaking of the marriage relationship of which I've already stated to you, koinonia is often a word used to explain and describe. It is there uh, and it stands true. After naming all the animals, right, in pairs, uh, male and female in verse uh, 20, um, it tells us that Adam there uh, was not found a helper for him that was suitable. And verse 21 through 23 describe the making of the woman from man. And in Genesis 2.24, we read, for this reason. What is the reason? It's not good for a man to be alone. A man shall leave his father and his mother. He will be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, the two individuals shall be made one for another, a close mutual relationship. Becoming complete as one, and it requires involvement. Everybody who is or has ever been married said, amen. Are we going to try that again? (laughs) Are you falling asleep? Too much Greek? (laughs) Everybody who is or ever has been married said, all right. That's That's weakly better. 
And I mean W-E-A-K, right? All right. Beyond the reality that God made man and the woman to complement him, it is clear that there is a benefit to be found in human beings coming together for strength to accomplish common goals. Someday I look forward to doing this as preaching through Ecclesiastes, but in chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, it says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Anybody who has ever worked knows that. Verse 10, for if either of them falls, the one can lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart, is not quickly torn apart. We get the idea, right, that beyond marriage relationship where God creates woman to complement the man and they come together as one, working together as one, uh, there is also this mutual need, right, for coming together and we find strength in the things that we do and that fellowship is part of that strength. That coming together is, is beyond just saying I'm a member of some church. Proverbs 15 Chapter 15, verse 22, says this, Without consultation, plans are frustrated. Without consultation, but with many counselors, they succeed. There is strength in the many. Proverbs 18, 1, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He does what? Some translations say, fights against all sound wisdom, right? He quarrels. He is uh, uh, fighting against all sound wisdom. And there is something about isolating ourselves here that God's Word says, you are seeking your own desire. And isn't that always true of us? When we get hurt, what do we want to do? We don't want to be hurt anymore, so we isolate. We move away. We get away. You're seeking your own desire. You get hurt somewhere in a church or an organization or a job or something. I want to get away, right? I want to move out of that job. I would encourage you, if you've experienced those things, to go back to that moment, pray, ask the Lord to reveal to you why it is that you had trusted other people so much that when something fell apart, and we know it always does, that I was so hurt because we're to put our hope in the things of the Lord. We're to put our hope in God always. We should always know that each and every one of us has the potential to be as wicked as anyone else. We should preconceive that we would need grace from others and mercy from others. And yes, it may hurt for a time, right? But we extend the same love that God loved us with. Amen? Friends, I want to take a moment and continue to warn that there's a reason that God calls Satan a predator and those who are on his team. The Bible calls wolves and sheep's clothing. All predators act the same way. They attack the flock, right? If you can imagine, there's a flock of sheep, and the predator comes in, and he pushes on that flock, and they begin to scatter and follow each other, and somebody gets parsed out, and they all of a sudden end up isolated and out there on their own. That predator can have their way with them. So where they may feel comfort because they don't have the difficulties of relationships and whatever may have driven them out, That is where the enemy does his finest work and puts people in the grave. 
Like the isolation of solitary confinement, we often choose this. We cannot do that, beloved. We must fellowship together. We must preconceive our need for grace. We must preconceive our need for mercy with one another. And it must be us that is continually devoted to the idea that we must stick together, lest the enemy parse us out. These sheep who get parsed out, they experience anxiety, depression, most often hopelessness, and fear of death. Beloved, it is not good for mankind to be alone, and God designed the church to be fellows participating, right, in the most critical job the world has ever known, taking the gospel into the world. How is it that the world will ever know that there is a God who is committed to being just because it is who he is? He must justly judge people because he is God. And he has already proclaimed in Adam's sin that all have died. All are worthy of being judged. How is it that we will ever take this message of hope to humanity? If, if we don't understand that God is just and that he is going to judge, right? How can we uh, give them the answer to that problem, which is, is knowing uh, that Jesus Christ came to take the punishment, God's just judgment, that punishment on the cross for you and I and all of those who don't know him. How, how will we ever be strong enough to do that? On our own, we, we won't. We won't be able to disciple we won't see people come to the know, uh, know the Lord. We won't have a reason for discipleship classes. Solitary confinement will only lead to death, and the gospel alone leads to life. This task of reaching the world is nothing short of monumental, amen, and it's going to take all of us. So we've seen that fellowship, which was turning the world upside down, was not a social hour, but rather a participation, a mutual agreement. And we have seen that God has designed people to need one another to accomplish a common goal, especially the goal of making disciples. In light of those true truths, that leads us to the third and final question. If we want to be a church that turns the world upside down, how do we respond how should we respond? We must return to the idea that the church is not a place just to, uh, to come and get something. We've got to return to the idea and get back to uh, understanding that, that fellowship is not just some kind of happy time together, that, that it is a partnership with one another that we might grow and, and, and learn and be challenged and see our sin exposed and repent from that sin and walk together continually, committed Sinners, beggars, as one of my pastors always says, right? Telling other beggars where to find bread, that should be the church. Amen? We must return to the idea that it is a committedness so that we can accomplish the goals of making disciples. We've got to turn from the idea that church is entertainment, and we've got to turn to this idea of self-participation, true fellowship. We've got to get serious about knowing people in our church. That means coming to church. I can't help but think of uh, those Christians now that, that have joined many others in, in the areas uh, throughout the world that get persecuted for coming to church while we uh, had to have time to go off on a vacation or 
get a, uh, some sort of uh, uh, sports event for our kids or things like that, more committed, right? Get, they will come together in an area that they will be murdered if they're found that they came together. And I'm not trying to condemn us. I get that. We need time off. Next week, I'm going to be gone. But I'm committed, amen? I'm committed to you. Make time for people. Ask them over to a meal. Eat with them. Get to know them. Pray with them. Ask them about their lives. Befriend them. Walk with them. Preconceive that they will disappoint you because they are going to. They can preconceive that you're going to disappoint you because you are going to. And they will celebrate together because God's grace and mercy says to love like he first loved us. Get involved in small groups. Make sure to come to 9 o'clock Sunday or discipleship classes. Lord willing, in January, we'll start up a a Bible Institute of sorts where we'll go through, we're going to read line by line from 6 to to 7 o'clock, 6.30 to 7.30 in the morning, line by line through the text and learn what does God's word say. Commit to that. Yes, it's early. I've been up earlier and I've stayed in longer classes. You can do it. They've always blessed me. Get it into your schedule. We'll get you more information on that in the future. I once met a person who was bothered because they didn't know anyone in the church, and they were telling, every, uh, telling me, it's like, well, this church is just not friendly, you know, and I, I can't get to know anybody, and nobody's done anything, and uh, yet the very spotty attendance. Never stayed late after service, just ran out of the Ran out of the building, right? You've got you to make time, beloved. You're not going to get to know anybody if you don't try to get to know somebody. Amen? Stick around. It's one of the things that we loved when we first came to FBC was that they stuck around. They had a meal together. Well, this is how I'm going to finish. Thank you for your patience. Most churches have a church covenant a promise with one another concerning what we'll do. I read you a part of ours earlier. But I think it's good for us to hear what God has said about the church, the very early church in Rome, and how it is that they were supposed to act in light of their salvation. We know and we see that wonderful salvation laid out for us in Romans chapter 1 through 11 and 12 starts with this great call, right? This parakaleo in the Greek, Uh, is this idea of, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, pause. (laughs) That doesn't sound too fun. (laughs) You mean, I got to get sacrificed and I'm going to live through it? At least if I died, it'd be over, right? But I want you, this may be a little bit strange, do it or don't, uh, as long as you can listen. I'm going to read those following verses that were given to the church in Rome to describe what they were to do now that they were saved. This is the church at Rome. This is the Word of God telling the church how to act. So close your eyes if you want, or sit and listen if you want, whatever it is. I'm going to read to you a few verses out of Romans chapter 3, or the remainder of uh, Romans 12, excuse me, verses 3 through 21. Let this sink in. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, 
not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the portion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's verse 9. Sounds like partnership, doesn't it? Verse 10. Be devoted, here's our word, to one another. That means you're not going to give up, right? You're not going to quit. You're going to have a fellowship, a marriage. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We've lost all chivalry in our country, let alone just between us. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, continuing to the needs, uh, contributing, excuse me, to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate, listen here, with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Let that set in. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is risen, written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does that sound like the church you belong to? It should. Eleven chapters of wonderful theology coming at you in Romans, telling you uh, that every man is condemned and how we can be saved. And, And then when we're done, I beseech you, brothers, live like that. (laughs) That is fellow ship. The Word of God is clear. Isolation and lockdown, segregation, beloved, will never advance the church. It will never advance the church to be the type of church that turns the world upside down. Fellowship matters. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Word, and I thank you, God, that it is powerful, like a two-edged sword, It cuts deeply and challenges us to change the way we live. And Lord, I pray that by your grace and mercy, you would help us to live this way. 
that when people think of FBC, that they think of the church that sounds like Romans 12, 3 through 22. A church, Lord, that is committed and devoted to one another. A church that is committed to using their gifts to serve one another for the greater good that the gospel might be, go out to our community, Lord. Help us be the church that is known for uh, loving our enemies well and leaving room for you and your own vengeance, Lord, that we might do that humbly. Thank you for this day and all those, Lord, who are here. I do not know hearts, and I, I pray, God, that you will have drawn some nearer to you today, renewing their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that you would convict of their sin and they would not leave today not knowing you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are just, that you are merciful. I pray, Lord, that we would cry out to you and turn back to you, that we might walk in a way that looks much like your scripture has us to walk. Lord, we'll be careful to give you all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.